You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Good morning, everybody. Let me kind of readjust what's going on up here for a second. So glad to be here uh, preaching this morning. Um, you might hear that I've got a little bit of a, a thing going on. Uh, so if you could uh, pray for me when we... Uh, pray this morning, uh, that would be wonderful. The Lord would sustain me uh, as, as I preach this morning. Well, as Meredith uh, read for us, we're going to be in Psalm 45. So if you have not already turned there in your Bible, I would invite you now to, to turn there. <clears throat> and as you turn there, there is an, just an interesting note about this psalm this morning, and that is that it is a, a wedding psalm. If you look at the superscription, uh, that's right above the first verse in your Bible. It's going to read to the choir master, according to Lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. Uh, this is the only love song. This is the only wedding song in the entire uh, Psalter. <clears throat> and it's probable this was used in all of the, the royal weddings. And it's a psalm that addresses both the king and the queen and anticipates their fruitful union in their, in their marriage. But following Resurrection Sunday, it seemed only appropriate to look at a psalm that is about a conquering king who sits enthroned with his bride, because that's our story. That's the story of the gospel. And as the psalm was being read, you, you may have noticed some of the passion of the psalmist. The author has a deep and abiding love for the king and for the promises of God. And in this psalm, he celebrates both. And canonically, the sadness of the psalms that come before this one are undone by the celebration of this king and this marriage. It's as though the psalmist's troubles melt in the presence of his glorious king because he is confident that the king will conquer that he is going to push back the darkness, that he is going to secure his kingdom and his people. And this king inspires confidence, and his people boldly fight by his side because they know that their king is going to lead them to victory. And while this psalm is speaking to the king of Israel at the time, it is addressed ultimately to the future king. The author's hopes are placed on the one whom the word of God says came, will come to conquer and make all things new. The psalm anticipates a king whose coming will resolve all the turmoil, all the pain of Israel. And this king is going to fulfill the blessing of Abraham by conquering the seed of the serpent, by overcoming all who curse God and his people, by blessing all peoples of the earth and making all things new. This is the king who will reign, and his reign will be marked by glory, splendor, and majesty, and his bride, beautiful. He will conquer the world, and he will fill it with his majesty and the joy of his reign. And we have confidence in this age and in the age to come because of him. This is the king who gives us hope. And this, dear friends, is Jesus. We have confidence because of him. 
And so, like the psalmist, we look at our king. We gaze at his beauty, his might, his authority, and we praise him. And when we do this, we can truly endure all hard things because we know that we are in the care of our praiseworthy king. So with that, let's pray and we'll jump into our text. Father, this morning we are glad to be together, to delight in you, to worship you, to enjoy you together. We ask that today you give us great vision of your grandeur, your majesty, your kingly rule and reign, and that all anxiousness that we might have, all troubles that we may be in the midst of would fade and melt away in the glorious presence of our King. May your word by your spirit speak truly to us this morning. May, may you pierce our hearts. May you reveal sin. May you show us the glories of Christ that we would leave here more committed to the truth of the word of God. And that we would love you more faithfully and that we'd be more committed to one another deeply for the sake of our Lord and Savior and King Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. So first, let's take a look at this, this praiseworthy king, starting in verse 1. The psalmist writes, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. So the psalmist begins here by acknowledging his own heart in the matter. He says that his heart overflows with a pleasing theme. He has, a, he has a tenderness, and he has an excitement and a passion. And, and the word that's rendered overflows, it, it pictures something that is boiling, that's, that's bubbling up. It's like a, a pot of water boiling, uh, cooking noodles. Uh, those of you maybe who have cooked noodles know that they have a tendency to boil over if you uh, don't do the right thing. A little pro tip for you, if you want to prevent that, you can put a little drop of olive oil in there, maybe a wooden spoon across the top. That's just a freebie uh, for you. But that's the imagery that's happening here. It's this, this boiling over. And, <clears throat> and, the, and the words pleasing theme. So he's boiling over with a pleasing theme. The words here are literally good word in the Hebrew. And so this phrase is literally, my heart stews on a good word. And this good word is met with a good and receptive heart. But what is the good word? What is the pleasing theme? And what does it mean that his heart is overflowing? Well, I think that there is perhaps a double meaning here. The first is that there is an overflow of love that has caused him to pen this psalm. And that's the sense that we get from the way that the ESV has translated this. But I think that this also means that he is, he is stewing or, or meditating on the Bible. And particularly the promise of God in the garden of the conquering seed of the woman. And we'll see a picture of that conquering shortly. The king who is to come. That's why in the next line he says that he addresses his song to the king. The psalmist has been meditating on the promises of God found in the word of God and it pleases him. When our minds are, are shaped by the, the promises and the word of God, 
When we are fixated upon them, we anticipate and we see God at work and we cannot help but erupt into praise and delight. This is the normal Christian life. And the psalmist says uh, one last thing about himself. He says that uh, my tongue is like the, the pen of a ready scribe. He's eager to write this song. And, and this phrase, ready scribe, is interesting because it is used only one other time in the whole Bible. Uh, it's used of Ezra. Ezra was described as a ready scribe. In Ezra 7, verse 6, it says, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a, a scribe skilled in the law of Moses the Lord, the God of Israel, had given and that scribe skill, that's the same word pairing, Safir Mahir, same exact thing. He was a, a skilled scribe or a ready scribe. Why? Because he knew the law of God. And so here, this means that the psalmist is a, is a quick student of the word. He knows how to navigate the word of God. Why? Because he meditates on it day and night. Now, the psalmist is saying that he knows the Bible well, and therefore he knows the promises of God. And this is why he's thinking about the future coming king of David's line. And then, as though the king had suddenly appeared before him, he shifts his focus to this king. He says in verse 2, he says, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. And he says three things here. He says that he has a beautiful appearance, that his words are gracious, and he is eternally blessed by God. And what he is saying is that the, this king is clearly head and shoulders above everyone else. And now, this is a, a wedding song, so obviously he's going to maybe go a little over the top. Uh, it's not like he's going to talk about how, uh, you know, maybe ugly the king is or how he isn't really good at talking to people. He's paying the right kinds of compliments that you might pay to somebody on the day of their, their wedding. But remember that this isn't merely about the present king. It's ultimately about the future king who will rule forever. And that's why in the last line of this verse, the psalmist recalls the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that a future descendant of David will have an eternal throne. And so we know this to be truly speaking of Jesus. But hang on a second. Jesus is the most handsome of all men. Doesn't Isaiah say that the Messiah would have no beauty or majesty? That people would not want to look at him or desire him? Is this a contradiction? How do we bring these two things together? Well, I think that the solution is this. The psalmist is so looking forward to the fulfillment of these promises that his hopes make the appearance of the king beautiful. I think that we can all understand that. The one that you long for and anticipate and desire. In a sense, it doesn't matter how ugly that person is. I think that maybe if we look at some couples, you might understand, like, how'd that happen? Kind of the same thing. <laughs> and while there 
are those who are outwardly beautiful ultimately. It is the content of one's character that really does make one beautiful. We might recall Proverbs 31.30. says, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Isaiah is stating that the Messiah will, will seem just like any other person. He's not going to stand out. And in fact, he will be treated as though he were ugly and as though he had no worth or dignity or majesty. And here in this psalm, we see that those who love the king, and ultimately we understand those who the king first loved, see him for who he truly is. It's beautiful and majestic. This king is someone in whose presence you want to stay because of his sheer beauty. And not only is he handsome, but grace is poured upon his lips. This is an allusion, I believe, to 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, which says, The the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Now, these are part of the, the last words of David himself. And the psalmist is thinking, again, of the promises made to David. He's looking at David's life, and he is anticipating how the king to come will be the the fullest expression of everything that we have seen in David. So if the word of God was on David's lips, so then the future king will speak the very words of God. He is king and he is prophet. And moreover, he speaks with impressive articulation. He has a magnetic sense to the way he speaks. People want to listen to him. And his words are always fit for every occasion. And of course, we know this to be Jesus, of whom we're told in John chapter 7, no one ever spoke like this man. One word from Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. One word changed the heart of Saul from the great persecutor of the church to the great apostle of the church. One word from the shepherd to his lost sheep will bring them into his fold. And we find the very same life-changing words from our Lord in our own lives, don't we? A scripture will come sailing off the pages and pierce our souls, changing our our nights into morning, our, our winter into spring, our anguish into joy. This is because our King is gracious, He is tender, and He knows how to speak a word fit for us. And because of this, This king is forever blessed. And because he is forever blessed, he will succeed in his conquest. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. And so, like a, like a spectator, the psalmist gives commands to the king. Now, I don't really, if you know me, uh, watch sports, but I do watch Survivor because I like to stay culturally relevant. But I know that what I'll do while watching Survivor is the same thing that uh, perhaps some of you do while watching sports, uh, and that is that you... Uh, Tell the person what to do. 
when you're watching the TV, right? As though they can hear you. It doesn't really make any sense, but we all do it. Uh, you cheer them on to do the right thing. So for me and Survivor, they're like, yes, play that immunity idol. Or yeah, vote for that person. <clears throat> but if we're talking about sports, it could be like, yeah, kick that ball. Or whatever, whatever it is. <clears throat> this is what the psalmist is doing. He is celebrating the king who he knows will come to conquer. So he tells him to have his sword at the ready. And this, the, the splendor and majesty here it refers to the king's majestic splendor when he appears in his full battle armor and regalia. And be ready to conquer is the command of the psalmist. And in verses 4 and 5, there's some stuff going on here in the original language that I think it's helpful for us to understand. Uh, he tells the, the king to ride out victoriously. Well, this word victoriously is the Hebrew word prosper. And, and we talked about this at the beginning of this series, you might remember, in Psalm chapter 1. In Psalm 1-3, we read of the man who meditates on the word of God day and night. And here's what he says. It says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. It's the same exact word. The psalmist here is saying, In your majesty, prosper. And we know that this prospering comes only by the knowledge of and obedience to the word of God. And in the second line, we see this phrase, for the cause of truth. And this can also be uh, uh, rendered, ride out on the word of truth. And the power of this king comes from the word of God. Again, that's Psalm 1. And who is Jesus if not perfectly obedient to every command of God? Who is himself the wisdom of God? Who is the word of God? made flesh. And we must pause here and recognize that it is only by the word of God that we find success, that we prosper, that we have victory. And by that I mean both Jesus, the word made flesh, and the written revelation of God. Jesus showed us in the testing of Satan in the desert that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of of the Lord. And he succeeded because he abided in the truth of God's word. He conquered because he knew that according to the word, he had to die as a substitute for his people. And because of that, we who have been called by Jesus are given the, the Holy Spirit that we might walk in the same obedience to the very same word of God. So if you are to truly live, you must live according to the word of God. And the good news is that by his spirit, you are able. And when you fail, Jesus' success overcomes your failure. For his grace is sufficient for you. I'll go back to the text here. <clears throat> so the king, he is to majestically ride out victoriously for the cause of truth, or on the, the word of truth, and meekness, and righteousness. Now we can understand this 
to be saying that the cause that lies behind the king's conquest uh, is truth. It is meekness. It is righteousness. He's a stalwart defender of the things of God. But this phrase, and meekness and righteousness, may also be translated in the humility of righteousness. I think the reality that we all understand is that righteousness is humble. You, you, you can't really have those two as separate things. If you are proud, you are not righteous. You are self-righteous. And this seems to be an allusion to what Moses said of the future Israelite kings in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Starting in verse 18, he says this. He says, and, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, that'd be the Torah, their Bible at the time, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. And here's the kicker in verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's. And that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The king cannot have his heart lifted up over either his brothers or over the word of God. He cannot have his heart lifted up over his brothers, lest he oppress them and use them for his own purposes. He cannot have his heart lifted up over the commandments of God thinking that it doesn't apply to him because he's the king. And there is a, a real human temptation when we have authority to elevate ourselves over others. And when this authority is not properly checked, people suffer. And we see this play out with, with dictators and, and autocrats and evil rulers throughout history. And even the laws of the land don't apply to them. But even in the church, this can be a problem. Uh, pastors who have a lot of clout, even among the larger evangelical movement, will, will teach one thing according to the word of God, but in their own lives, they live a different way. Uh, their power has made them proud, and, and, they, and they love uh, or live by their own standards. Uh, this is why sex abuse happens in churches and, and why cover-ups happen even among well-known pastors. The power of sin is real. And as Lord Acton famously said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And no one is above the law, especially not the law of God. And this is what this king knows. In humility, this king must recognize that he is subject to the word of God. In humility, he must recognize that the people aren't there to serve him, but he is there to serve them by his excellent ruling, by justly modeling the faithful life. And it is the, the word of God that produces this kind of righteous humility. And this is the kind that Jesus showed. He did only the will of the Father, and we're told in Matthew 20 that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is how the king is to live. And because of this, awesome deeds will be accomplished by the king. And the right hand here symbolizes his, his military strength. 
And his right hand is going to teach him mighty acts by performing them and thereby causing him to experience the glory and magnificence of God. And we see this kind of military magnificence in verse 5. Here the psalmist is celebrating the king's assured victory. Now in, in the Hebrew, the sentence is a little awkward and it's smoothed out for us in the English translation. Uh, the, the original word order here is, your arrows are sharp, peoples fall under your feet in the heart of the enemies of the king. So what's happening here, it's as though the psalmist is, is interrupting himself mid-thought. Your arrows are sharp, peoples fall under your feet in the hearts of your enemies. This psalmist is, is so excited about the king that he cannot help but express adoration even in the middle of a thought. And if you look, as I mentioned earlier, if you look at the Psalms just before this one, Psalms 42 through 44 are Psalms of despair. I'll just read a smattering of different lines from these, these, these Psalms. My tears have been my food day and night. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? You have made us like sheep for slaughter. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. This psalm here is the undoing of all of those miseries. The relief comes when the king comes. And he is a welcome sight to those who cheer for his victory. Elsewhere, in, in Psalm 110, we read in verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then later in verses 5 and 6, it says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. God has ordained that the future king, King Jesus, will rule over all the earth. He will conquer his enemies, those who live in the darkness. And as we move into verse 6, we see that the, the conquest is established, and so the throne, uh, the conquest is, is accomplished, so the throne is established. Let's look at verses uh, 6 and 7. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the gladness, oil of gladness beyond your companions. And the psalmist here does something very interesting. He addresses the king as God. And we know this because the thought continues into verse 7 where he says, Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. So what's going on here? Is the psalmist deifying the king? Is this idolatry? Well, I think that what's happening here is, is common in the ancient Near East. And it was common in the ancient Near East for people to see their king as the unique representative of their God. And so we see that in our own scripture, Adam was the visible representation of the invisible God. He was God's representative on earth, and the psalmist sees the descendant of David as a representative above all other representatives. And because the Davidic king is, is God's uh, vice regent on earth, the psalmist addresses him 
as if he were God incarnate. And we see this also in passages like Isaiah 9, where the ideal Davidic king is given the title Mighty God. And so when the king's enemies oppose the king on the battlefield, it's, it's as though they were fighting against God himself. Something else that's going on here. But the, the, the psalmist here likely does not know that the, the Messiah is going to be God himself. Um, however, Jesus is the fulfillment of this verse and is God. And many were shocked and even rejected, at the miraculous, rejected the miraculous things that Jesus did as God. And this seems to show that the Jewish people were not expecting God himself to be a human king. But just because the psalmist did not understand that reality does not mean that this does not describe that reality. And this is because God's revelation is progressive. God progressively reveals things to his, his people Jesus embodies everything that the psalmist expects and even more. And, and we know this to be true because the author of Hebrews says that these two verses are about Jesus, who is the son who inherits and conquers the earth. And he conquers and he rules with the scepter of uprightness. And this scepter is the scepter that will not depart from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, it is the scepter that would rise to crush the forehead of Moab in Numbers 24. It's the scepter that the king in Psalm 2 uses to break his enemies. And so his, his royal rule is marked by uprightness. And the king will use the scepter to do what is right. And that includes the conquering of the enemies of God. And in verse 7, we see that he promotes only what is righteous, and he is opposed to everything that is wicked. Our king will always make the right choice, even if evil seemed alluring. Remember, again, Satan's tempting of Jesus in the desert. Jesus did not sin. Why? He hated wickedness. He loved righteousness. And because of his character, God has anointed him with the oil of gladness. And this phrase, oil of gladness, also appears in Isaiah 61, where the mourners are given oil of gladness when they are delivered from their oppression, when the conquering king arrives. And in verses 8 and 9, we read this. It says, Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. The king has triumphed. And in his reign, there is the aroma and sounds of peace. And not just some of the robes, but all of his robes are fragrant. And these fragrances are mentioned in Exodus 30 as consecrating oils. This king is set apart for his holy task, his holy rule and reign. His conquering and his ruling are divinely appointed and supported. And the daughters of the conquered kings enter into his kingdom. Now we might think that's a little weird. That might seem a little uh, ancient, not really a part of how we understand conquering to happen, but... That really was a common practice at the time. But rather than showing us something horrifying about the king, it really does show us something wonderful about him. How would you expect at this time the women of conquered nations to be treated? 
We would not be surprised if they were abused and, and treated shamefully or even just imprisoned. But this king, when he finds these women, he lifts them up. He, he treats them with tenderness. And he places them among the ladies of honor. And he even chooses one of them to be his bride. This is a king of, of compassion. This is a king of, of tender love. This is a king who brings even Gentiles into places of honor. This is a king who, who always makes the right choice. Because of this, he has an exalted status and a gladness that he enjoys in the presence of God. He is anointed as the king of kings. And this is the kind of king about whom, like the psalmist, we can enthusiastically praise and delight and anticipate. But this is a, a wedding psalm after all, and so the psalmist now turns his attention to the, the king's bride, the, the beautiful queen. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. It says, Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. And so just as the psalmist gave commands to the king, so also he now gives commands to the queen. He tells her to hear, to consider, and to incline her ear. This means that she is to reflect deeply on her new status in relation to the king. She's to reflect on her, her new sphere of influence, her, her new duties, her new family. She belongs to a new family and a new people. And she would be a fool not to hear the call of the king and take hold of all that he offers her. And the bride might tend to be homesick, which in turn might cause her to mourn and diminish her joy. She needs to overcome this temptation to unhappiness and enter into the marriage with joy. And then the king, the promise in verse 11 is, will be drawn to her beauty. Her devotion to him, just as he is devoted to her, wins his heart and makes her all the more beautiful to him. And she must give herself entirely to her Lord and her spouse. She must have no thought for anyone but him. And she must end all associations and relationships that would separate her from her king. And when she does, she will receive the tribute from all the nations because why she is married to the conquering king. And just as the bride here is exhorted to, to leave her former family, so the Christian forsakes all to be joined to Christ. The church is, after all, the bride of Christ. We belong to him, and our attention, our allegiance, our affections must be for him alone. Again, if you'll hear the call, the king will desire your beauty. Well, what is that if not the gospel call? Hear the gospel call. Forget your false gods, your false worship. Your false worldview. Incline your ear to the king, bow to him, and what? He will show favor to you. That's eternal life. That's forgiveness of sins. 
But renouncing the world is not easy. It's no small task to go against our sinful flesh. And this is true both for the Christian and the non-Christian. But non-Christian, I would say to you, there is nothing more important in your life than to acknowledge the person of Jesus. You have to reckon with who Jesus is. We all have sinned, and we all sin in many ways. And our sin is not just against other people. It's not just against some cosmic uh, uh, sense of morality. It is against the creator God of the universe. And when we sin, we rebel against him and his good ways. And like the enemies of the king, we deserve to be struck down and defeated. But the good news is that this king is merciful. If you will renounce your sinful ways, hate your sin for the evil that it is, and trust in the grace and mercy of Jesus, the promise is that you will be forgiven. You will receive a new heart. You will find freedom. And not, not perfection. Life is still going to be hard. And you're still going to sin. But slowly, you will begin to notice that the allure of the things of this world aren't quite so alluring. These things begin to fade, and instead, you're drawn more and more into the glory of Jesus. The Citizens Church, we must also renounce our old selves and our old ways. We must learn to walk the path of righteousness. But what gets in our way is that we cling to the old far too often. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers in the late 19th century, said this about the process of renouncing our sin. He says, We have much to forget as well as to learn, and the unlearning is so difficult that only diligent hearing and considering and bending of the whole soul to it can accomplish the work, and even these would be feeble did not divine grace assist. Yet, why should we remember the Egypt from which we came out? Are the leeks and the garlic and the onions anything? When the iron bondage and the slavish tasks and the death-dealing Pharaoh of hell are remembered? We part with folly for wisdom with bubbles for eternal joys, with deceit for truth, with misery for bliss, with idols for the living God. Brothers and sisters, God is infinitely more valuable than all the things that we find ourselves obsessed and consumed with. And not only is he more valuable, but he is true And he alone satisfies our longings. And when we gaze at his beauty, all other lusts lose their luster. And in Christ, we find our freedom. But freedom is not license. Because we are free does not mean that we are free to sin. We are free from the burden of our sin. We are free from the the slave master that is our sin. But our Lord places his yoke upon our neck. 
But the good news is that it is easy and the burden is light. It's hard work to do this. The Christian life is not easy. We don't just sit and pray. We pray and we act. We must move toward holiness. We have to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And the good news is that our Lord sees us through to the other side. He will bring us to glory. All our labor is not in vain because of our great King. He will bear with us in our foolishness, and He will be faithful to empower us in our obedience. Lord, teach us. Teach us to be wholly committed to you. Work in us that we would will and work according to your good pleasure. Let's continue reading in our text. In verses 13 through 15. It says, All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. And now we see the, the beauty of the queen who is being called. This, this captive daughter, and that word princess here is king's daughter in the, in the Hebrew. Uh, she has been clothed with robes interwoven with gold. And they are many colored and beautiful, all glorious is how he describes the bride. The king has added glory to her beauty. And she is led into the wedding palace of the king by this troop of women. The day has arrived. She has come to this king to be married to him. And it is with joy and gladness that they come. And, and how else could a, a bridal party be? Weddings are a joyful occasion. It would be weird if you were at a wedding and everyone who was walking down the aisle uh, had a scowl on their face like they were unhappy to be there. I mean, when we see our own wedding tradition, what do we see? There's a, there's a quiet anticipation. There's, there's a happiness. Everyone who walks down the aisle has got a smirk on their face. They're excited. One by one, they walk down the aisle until finally what? The bride comes, and what happens? Everyone stands, and their eyes are fixated on the beauty of the bride as she approaches her groom. This is what's being described here. And of course, we see the connection to our Lord. Just as the king has clothed his bride in glorious robes, so also Jesus clothes us. The church, his bride, with his glorious righteousness. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, John describes a, a scene of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which does seem like a natural connection to our text. And then he, he says this, starting in verse 7, he says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And we come back to the same point that we just talked about. We walk in faithfulness 
to God according to his word. And then, because it was granted to us by Christ, we are gloriously adorned. And as we anticipate that day, as we march forward in this wedding procession, you might say, we are marked by joy and gladness. And how could we not? How else could we be as we watch the nations walk out of darkness and into his marvelous light? And we all shall come into the king's palace, the place that Jesus prepares for us. In John 14, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Brothers and sisters, Jesus will receive us into the heavenly dwelling place, and we will be with him for all of eternity in eternal marital bliss. As wonderful as it is for the Gentile bride to be brought into the family of the king of Israel, how much more glorious is it for us rebels and haters of God to be joined with the king of the universe? Our God, he is gracious, he is glorious, and he is loving. And now that the the wedding has, has come, we've we look finally at the blessing that awaits. That would be the fruit of the union of this king and queen, verse 16 and 17. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. The king and queen will be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with princes who will go out and extend the rule and reign of the God of Israel. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? That sounds like Genesis 1, where God told Adam and Eve, who would be the the first king and queen, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This king and queen will be like a new Adam and Eve, filling the earth with image bearers of God who go out and subdue it. And we should also think of God's promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham in Genesis 22. He says, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The offspring of this king and queen will be a blessing to the nations as they extend the rule of God, because the rule of God is a blessing. And and the result is that the name of the king will be remembered in all generations and will be praised by them forever. There will be no end to the celebration of the king from the line of David. And this is a reference, once again, to the promise God gave to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. The future descendant of David will have a great name. And the rule of his royal family is good news for the nations. And the psalmist knows all this and is looking forward to that day when the king arrives. But friends, the king has arrived. And he fulfills all that the psalmist has written. And his name is Jesus. 
Jesus is the most handsome of the sons of men. The one who was glorified in heaven with the Father, who took the form of a lowly servant, being born in the likeness of men to be hated, stricken, and put to death as a criminal, and who was raised to life in a glorious body. Jesus is the one whose lips are marked by the grace of God, effectually calling all his sheep to himself, always ready to give us grace in time of need. Jesus is the king who is blessed forever by God, the one through whom all nations will be blessed. Jesus is the one who came into Jerusalem on a donkey victoriously in splendor and majesty as the king who has finally come. And he came for his bride to free her from captivity and to make her glorious and beautiful. And he accomplished this by dying on the cross. He was buried and three days later rose from the grave. And in so doing, he conquered sin and death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The death blow has been dealt to Satan. And the king's sharp arrows have pierced him. And Jesus' victory has been accomplished because he is the resurrected Lord. Jesus is the one whose throne is eternal, the throne from which he now reigns and is making all his enemies fall under him. Jesus is the anointed one, the one who has come to set the captives free For if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And we have been set free from all our sin. We are no longer in bondage to our sin. We are given the grace and the power to walk in newness of life. We were captive to our sin. We were consumed in darkness, and we have been set free in the light of his glory. And through Jesus We are the princes who go out in all the earth and tell the good news of our king, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And Jesus is the one who will come again in victory. He will judge the nations. He will resurrect and glorify the saints and make all things new and be among us face to face forever. And when he comes... He will be praised by all nations because God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will be praised And he will make all things new. Death will be no more. Sin vanquished. Satan defeated. The children exalted. And our hearts now and forevermore overflow with a pleasing theme. They boil over with a good word. And that good word, Jesus Christ is King. He has arrived. He has conquered. He has come for his bride. He will adorn her in splendor and he will rule forever. And our song will forever be, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Like the psalmist, we are reminded that we must meditate deeply on these truths until our King comes again. Let's pray. Oh God, our great, mighty, powerful, and merciful King, you are the the one who conquers your enemies. You are the one who sets the captive free. You are the one who reigns eternal. And we love you. And we thank you for setting us free. We thank you for setting us apart from eternity past. We thank you for bringing us into your family, into your fold, that we might be made glorious and beautiful, even as our Lord is glorious and beautiful. Father, Help us this day and all our days never to forget the glories of Christ. Help us to have a a hunger and a passion and a desire for your word that we would see the true and beautiful and wonderful things about him, that we would delight in him always, forever. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.